Welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. In this session, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And this section flows out of the argument so far, but it propels it forward by introducing new themes that really are going to occupy Paul up through chapter 8. Let's set the context. If you recall, in chapters 1 through 4, the major thing Paul is dealing with there is helping us realize how God has dealt with the problem of wrath. Romans chapter 1 said that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the wickedness and ungodliness of people. And then Paul goes on to show how all people really are justifiably deserving of that wrath so, how is God going to solve that problem? And in Romans 3, 21 through 26, Paul says the way God solved it was, apart from the law, through Christ, by Christ offering himself as a propitiation. And in doing that, he provided redemption for our sins so that now we can stand before God justified. And justified means declared right, declared not guilty. It's a legal term that talks about a giving us a favorable verdict. Well, Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 picks up at that point and really summarizes that idea and then leads us forward into really one of the results or benefits of being justified, and that is the safety and security of our relationship with God. And that safety and security enables us to live with joy and confidence in the present time, regardless of what comes our way, because we know what the future has for us, and we know that future is based on the love of God. That, in a nutshell, is what Romans 5, 1 through 11 is all about. So to begin with, Paul says that justification by faith results in peace with God. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, and remember, when you see a therefore, you're, you're drawing a conclusion. You're stating a conclusion from something that preceded. And so this is Paul's summary statement from really the end of chapter 3 through chapter 4, where Paul was laying out before us the idea of justification by faith and how that was really a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And so, therefore, based on what I've just said, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And so the initial point Paul makes here as he begins chapter 5 is that justification results in peace with God. The argument or demonstration of God's righteousness and justification that really began in 321 and then was carried through the exposition of Abraham finds its culmination here. Paul said at the end of Romans 3 that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In God's righteousness, God has dealt with the penalty of sin. He's taken care of the wrath that all of us stood under. The penalty's paid. Sinners can now be pardoned. Justification achieved. And what's the result of that now? Well, that justification, as noted here, is received simply by faith. That is by trusting what God has done in Jesus, putting our faith in him. And the result of that is peace, peace with God. So whereas outside of Christ, we stood under God's wrath, inside of Christ, we now stand 
under peace. We have peace in our relationship with God. And notice what Paul says. He doesn't say we should have peace or we can have peace or someday we will have peace. Notice the tense of the verb. We have peace. It's an accomplished fact. And the reason for that is because Paul's not so much describing here our sense of inner tranquility, although that's a part of it and that should come along with it. What he's really describing is an objective fact that the wrath and hostility that existed between us and God is now done away with and removed and it's replaced with peace. As Ben Witherington says in his commentary, Paul is talking about the cessation of hostilities, the ceasing of hostilities between people and God. So we have peace. That's the nature of our relationship with God and that peace is through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's brought it about. He's the one who's made it possible. And he's done that, as Paul showed at the end of chapter 3, by being a propitiation for us and absorbing the wrath of God in our place so that now we stand in a relationship with God marked by complete and total and perfect peace. And Paul goes on in verse 2 to describe the nature of this relationship in terms of access. He says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction. But that phrase, obtained our introduction, literally is we have access. So through whom, through Jesus, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And that word access is actually the word regularly used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to describe mankind's approach to God. It's the word that's regularly used to describe priests in the temple or tabernacle approaching God. And so what Paul is saying now is that Uh, We have this kind of access. It's the word that's used in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul talks about us being able to come before God with openness, unhindered, freedom of speech, that we have access to him. And so through Christ, our relationship with God is now one uh, full of peace, and we have been given access, an open door policy by faith, into this grace in which we stand. Notice that, that this access is into grace. Picture, if you will, a room, and the entire environment and climate of that room is one of kindness and generosity of spirit and favor, and Christ is the doorway into that room. That's sort of the picture we have here, that uh, God, through Christ, has opened the door into his palatial estate, and in that estate, we are under grace. God looks on us with favor. God uh, responds to us with generosity and kindness of heart and goodwill. That's grace. Grace is active kindness and active favor towards us. And notice, we stand in that. We stand there. That's just the realm and now we, in which we live and move and have our being. And so we enter into the very grace of God, his kindness, his favor, his generous disposition towards us. That's where we stand. And as a result of all of this, Paul says at the end of verse 2 that 
we now exult in the hope of the glory of God. That word exult is the same word translated as boast or boasting in 327 and 4.2. And so this idea of exulting is to proudly rejoice. That's the idea. It's to celebrate and proudly rejoice in something. And here what we proudly rejoice in is the hope of the glory of God. Remember, that sin caused us to fall from the glory of God, right? We fell short of it. Well, now in Christ, that, that we have the hope of being restored to the fullness of the glory, to experiencing his glory, to embodying his glory, right? And so we exult in the hope of the glory of God. It's what we celebrate in, we revel in, that we have proud, confident rejoicing in hope, the hope of the glory of God. And Hope in the New Testament, hope in Greek, is not just a wish. Oh, I sure hope it will happen. That's not just it. Hope is really a confident expectation of something we know and anticipate to occur. We just don't know when it's going to happen. And so we know it's going to happen. We anticipate it happening. And therefore, we confidently expect it to happen. And so we are exulting in this hope that we just look forward confidently to knowing is going to happen someday. Now, with that, then Paul then transitions in verses 3 through 5 to the reality of this hope enabling us to glory in, that is, boast in again and revel in our present hardships. How weird is that, that somehow our confident expectation of the glory of God and our boasting in that actually enables us to live even now in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty and hardship uh, with confident rejoicing, with exultation, even in the present. But that's the point Paul makes here in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Listen to what he says. He says, beginning in verse 3, And not only this, but we also exult, same word, proudly rejoice, in our tribulations. That is, in our hardships, our sufferings, our difficulties. Why? Well, he's going to tell us why, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. So you need to really infer in that knowing kind of the causal idea. This is because we know something. We proudly rejoice in tribulation, not because we like pain, not because, oh, heartache is so great for us. No, we proudly rejoice because of what we know. Okay, that's the sense of this knowing. Because we know that tribulation actually brings about something worthwhile and good. So we proudly rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that, because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. Tribulation brings about endurance. The more you work hard at something, the stronger you get. The more you do it, the more you're able to endure, right? And so hardship, difficulty, struggle helps us build up our strength so that we can endure more and more things. So tribulation produces perseverance. Paul goes on in verse 4 and says, And perseverance produces or works, brings about proven character. That, that word, it's actually one word in Greek, translated proven character. That word means something that's tried and true. It's been tested and found genuine. And that's the reason the uh, scholars have translated as proven character. It's not just character. It's character that's authentic, genuine, tried and true, and hence proven character. And then we come full circle and say, that character actually confirms our hope. And so he says, 
uh, and proven character brings about hope. It's like, no, we've we've fought for this. We've stayed true to this. Our character is increasingly becoming like Jesus through all of this. And that confirms our hope. That strengthens our hope. And guess what? Verse 5 says, and our hope does not disappoint. It doesn't bring shame and it doesn't bring disappointment. Why not? Because it's predicated on the very love of God. Notice what he says in verse 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The one really uh, important phrase in there is a little bit ambiguous is the phrase love of God. Um, Paul doesn't use that phrase surprisingly exactly very often, but he does in a couple other places in Romans 8.39 and 2 Corinthians 13.13. 13. And in both those places, it's God's love for us. And that's probably what he has in mind here, particularly in view of the following context, where that's what's the center of verses 6 through 10, is God's love for us. And so that's probably what he has in mind here. And so hope doesn't disappoint because it's based on God's love for us. That's the idea. And God's love for us was poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So God's very love was mediated to us in the gift of God himself, in the person of his spirit, coming to live with us and in us. And so now we've experienced this very intimate personal connection with God and his love. And that love is the very basis of our hope. And then where Paul goes next in this just really amazing section is to describe the stunning nature of God's love for us. And so verses 6 through 8 really just describes in beautiful terms how incredible God's love is for us. And then in verses 9 through 11, it proclaims the assurance for the future this love means for us. In other words, what Paul says here in this section is, of course this hope doesn't disappoint because it's based on this shocking, stunning, amazing love of God himself. And with love like this, it's been given to us. Of course he's going to save us in the end. And so ultimately, what we glory in, Paul is going to go on to say, what we revel in and proudly rejoice in is God himself. Because of all of this is based on God's undying, incredible love for us. That's really where Paul is going in the second half of this section here in verses 6 and following. Let's read verses 6 through 8 so you can hear Paul's description of God's love for us. He says, For, here is, notice that for, that connection, the logical connection with what proceeds. Here's what God's love is like. For, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For someone will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is the description of God's incredible, amazing love for us. Paul says in verse 6 that God showed this love for us while we were still helpless. The idea is being weak and unable to do anything for ourselves. So we were we were sick and weak and helpless, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so this love of God reached its culmination point, its highest expression, when Christ died for us. And he didn't die for us when we were 
uh, had our act all together when we were in a good state of mind or good state of being. He did it while we were helpless and ungodly. Um, and this emphasizes really our unworthiness. We were helpless and ungodly and thus unworthy of this kind of love, but that did not stop God from loving us. Paul goes on in verse 11 to say, this is shocking because when it comes to general human experience, we humans will rarely die for good people, righteous people, but God did it while we were helpless and ungodly. So verse 7 says, one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might dare to die. Don't press the the contrast between righteous or good too far. Paul's point is simply that people rarely voluntarily give up their life for somebody who's worthy, for somebody who's worthy, and yet God did it for us when we were unworthy. The one distinction between righteous and good that probably holds true and makes sense is good has more of the sense of benevolent, right? So this is a benevolent person, someone who's been a benefactor or who's been really helpful to you. You might you might find somebody who you know willingly lays down their life for somebody who's been very generous to them right but that's just still very rare right so people rarely die for worthy people is the point of verse 7 but in verse 8 he says but god demonstrates god shows forth his own love towards us in this in that while we were still sinners christ died for us we were still sinners we were still deserving of wrath. We were helpless, ungodly sinners, unworthy of his wrath. Now, let me make a real clear distinction on this. When I use the word unworthy, that's not the same as saying worthless. And this is a very important distinction that sometimes we, we just don't think through clearly enough. We are unworthy of something. But we are not worthless. In fact, we have so much value and worth that we were worth, in God's estimation, the price of his very own son laying down his life for us. And so, though we didn't deserve it and were therefore unworthy, we have incredible worth. We have the worth of God's very own son. That's how much God estimated us. And so God loved us literally to death in the person of Jesus, and he laid down his life for us. Now, following this, verses 9 and 10 proclaim that on the basis of God's love, there is much more about our present situation. So verses 9 and 10 proclaim the much more of our present circumstance based on God's great love for us. And so this is what verses 9 and 10 say. They say, much more than having now already been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so don't miss the emphasis on much more. That's the way verse 9 begins. And much more in the middle of verse 10. In fact, when we get to the second paragraph of chapter 5, we're going to get even more, much more. Because Paul wants us to see how much Jesus' uh, death achieved for us and for all of mankind and for the whole world. Here specifically, he's talking about how... The, the work of Jesus has provided this security and this assurance for us 
in the present time that should mark the life we have now. So he says, much more than in verse 9, now that we've been justified by his blood, justified by faith, declared not guilty, been given a favorable verdict already, that's the idea of justified, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, right? All mankind, according to verse 18 of chapter 1, stand under wrath, but we will be saved from that. Why? Because we've been justified by the blood of Jesus. So much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God because we've been justified. That's the idea. So when we look to the future and we know God's wrath is going to punish uh, the sins of mankind and it's going to purify this world of all that has ruined it, well, we're going to be delivered from that. We can have much more confidence because of the justification we already enjoy. Verse 10 says, not only that, we don't just enjoy justification, we enjoy reconciliation. And reconciliation has to do with warring parties being brought together now at peace, being made friends, right? We have peace with God in verse 1. And so he says in verse 10, for if while we were enemies in our previous pre-Christ existence, right? When we were outside of Christ, we were enemies with God. We were hostile towards him and we stood under his wrath. And so there was hostility between us, right? So we were enemies with God. If while we were enemies with God, we were reconciled, that, that hostility was replaced with friendship. And so we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than Having now been reconciled, so the state we're in right now as believers is reconciled, so having now been reconciled, much more we shall be saved by his life. And so when we look at our present situation and we realize what we have in Jesus, it should give us much more assurance and security about what's going to happen to us in the future. We will be saved. We will be delivered from the wrath of God and from the condemnation that uh, all mankind who are outside of Christ stand under. We have great assurance that that is not for us. Now, the result of all of that then in verse 11 is this. And not only this, but we exult. Same word. So we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We exult in our tribulations because we know they're going to produce character. And now we exult, we celebrate and revel in and proudly rejoice in God himself. We exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so having now been given this peace with God, having been now reconciled to him through what Jesus has done on our behalf, now we proudly rejoice in God himself. We celebrate God himself because he's the one who made all of this possible. His great love force is the one that did this for us. And we have peace with him. Our relationship with him now is safe and secure. And so we proudly rejoice in God himself. And so let me offer this concluding reflection on this incredible section of Paul's letter here to the Romans. And that reflection revolves around the idea of safety and security. I want you to reimagine your life. I want you to picture your life and I want you to say about yourself, I am totally safe and secure in the love of God. 
I want you to reimagine your life as somebody who is completely safe and secure in the love of God, because that's what Jesus intends for us. That's what Jesus wants for us by virtue of his self-giving love for us. Jesus wants us to be totally secure, totally at peace, and totally at rest in the gracious love of God for us. Imagine, if you will, a small child who, say, gets hurt or gets woken up in the night scared from a nightmare, and her dad or his dad comes right into the room, right to where that child is, and scoops him or her up into his arms and reassures her that it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I'm here. I've got you. There's a sense of safety and security in that, isn't there? And as we grow older, we, we often I fail to think of ourselves this way, but we still want and we still need that sense of belonging, that sense of security, that sense of safety and security, that we're not going to be rejected, that we've got a friend who's got our back all the time, that there's somebody who will be there for us and not leave us or abandon us. Even in our worst moments, they will love us, right? We want that and we need that. And in Jesus Christ, we have that. That's the point of these verses. We have that. You see, sometimes because of sins we've committed or because of sins even committed against us, we go about life feeling like we're just unworthy of being loved. Like, if you only knew what I had done, or when I was 10 years old, my dad, or I'm filthy and dirty and just not worth loving. And we can go about life like that But here's the thing. Romans chapter 5 said, God in Christ has already literally loved you to death. Now that you've come home to the family, now that you have peace with him, now that you're his friend, his son, or his daughter in Christ, do you think he loves you any less? Like, Do you think he doesn't want you? Of course not. He loves you with an everlasting love. That's what Jeremiah the prophet says, right? That God loves his people with an everlasting love, and that's still true about you, and it's proven in what he did for us in Jesus. So if God loved you and did the hard work of loving you and redeeming you and rescuing you and reconciling you when you weren't even trying, when you were on the outside and his enemy, now that you're his friend, do you think he's going to love you any less? Of course not. And so we can rest with complete assurance and complete confidence in the safety and security of our relationship with God.